Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, the Byline Times podcast. This time of the UK's freedom and democracy under threat. This week, the elections bill was passed, which makes photo ID compulsory. Not such a big deal, you might think, but the government's own figures suggest this could affect more than two million citizens. Older people will be able to use their bus passes. Younger folk won't be able to use their rail cards. Oh, and the Electoral Commission, whose job is to oversee elections, will come under ministerial control. The government says the bill is all about protecting the integrity of the ballot box. Critics have described it as an authoritarian power grab. The Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill has been passed too, extending the range of restrictions the the police can place on protests, including those deemed too noisy. We'll hear shortly from Chris Renard, a.k.a. Lord Renard, the Lib Dem peer who led opposition to the elections bill in the upper house, and to Hadeep Matharu, editor of the Byline Times. And we'd love to hear from you as well if you're listening live on Byline Radio via Twitter spaces. This only really works, though, if you're listening on your phone using the Twitter app. That way you can access the little purple microphone in the bottom left hand of your screen. If you tap that a little bit later on, if you want to join in the conversation, if you think you've got a contribution to make or if you've got a question to ask, just tap that little microphone in the bottom left hand corner of your screen and we will let you in. As I say, though, first we'll hear from uh, Chris and from Hard Deep. And before that, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's the brilliant monthly newspaper that Hardeep edits. We're all about free and fearless journalism, rooting out corruption and telling it like it is. And we owe no allegiance to any political party nor crucially to any corporate interest or to any proprietor telling us what to say or to think. We owe our allegiance to our readers. So please, if you can, take out a subscription to the Byline Times and you're helping to support Byline Radio, the podcast, Byline TV and our website, bylinetimes.com. And that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe as well to the Byline Times at bylinetimes.com. Let's welcome our guests then. Firstly, good evening to Hardeep Matharu, editor of the Byline Times. Hi, Hardeep, you're right. Hello, Adrian. It's good to be back on Byline nice Radio. Back on Byline Radio. And Lord Renard, Chris Renard. Hello, Chris. How are you doing? You're right. Hello, good evening, Adrian. I'm absolutely fine, but it's been an exhausting week in the House of Lords. And we really appreciate your time this evening, Chris, after what I know has been a pretty gruelling period for you, leading the opposition to the elections bill. But on many of the key amendments which the Lords sought to overturn, you have been defeated. What does this mean for ordinary listeners, wherever they're listening in the UK? Well, I'd say it was a sad day for democracy when you have the independent watchdog, which was set up in 2000 and ever since then has maintained its independence in order to advise Parliament, advise candidates and agents and political parties and make recommendations for uh, future election law, etc. It's now going to come effectively under the control of Michael Gove, who will set a policy and strategy statement for it. And it will have to uh, have due regard to it and answer to a committee in which two ministers sit if it doesn't answer to it. So I think that's the first thing that's very wrong about what's now happening. 
and you had grave concerns as well about photo ID. And I, I mentioned the the fact that if you are an older person who qualifies for a bus pass, that photo ID will be sufficient to get you into the polling booth. But if you're a younger person and you have a young person's rail card, which you might think is an equivalent form of photo ID, that doesn't allow you to vote. Well, you might well think that's not a coincidence. And that was this aspect of the bill on which I led the opposition, proposing an alternative. The government tried to say that they were worried about impersonation at the polling station, stealing someone's vote. But they never bothered to investigate what the scale of the problem might be. But I and others did. And if actually you go to a polling station, find someone has stolen your vote, claimed to be you, what happens is you get a replacement ballot paper. And those are recorded separately. Now, if there's then a dispute in the election, it can be investigated and you can sort out what's really gone on. And by asking all the returning officers how many of these were issued, we know that out of 32 million ballot papers issued in the last general election, there were only 1,300 replacement ballot papers, and most of them were due to a clerical error crossing off the wrong name on the list. So actually, there's virtually no evidence of impersonation. But if the government was worried about it, I suggested that the poll card issued by the electoral registration officer to every voter that should suffice because if you're trying to steal someone's vote you not only have to impersonate them in the polling station you have to steal their poll card so it's most unlikely you'd be able to get away with something which virtually nobody gets away with anyway but the government wouldn't have it and now they have a system for compulsory photo id so you have your passport or driving license and it tends to be more affluent people have these forms of identity perhaps people who are more likely to vote conservative and younger people who perhaps can't afford a passport or a driving license or who perhaps move home more frequently than in the private rented sector they're less likely to be able to vote and on the government's estimate that's 2.2 million people they can apply for an identity card, but they won't know when the election's coming till the election has happened, and they might well not be able to do it in time. And it's not realistic to suggest that 2.2 million people will do that. You used the word uh, uh, coincidentally earlier on uh, with your tongue, I think, firmly in your cheek. You, you don't think there's anything coincidental about the introduction of these measures? Well, many people are, of course, deeply suspicious. But let me not just um, rely on what I think, and obviously I'm a Liberal Democrat peer. We can talk about Baroness Ruth Davidson, the former leader of the Scottish Conservatives, who voted with me on my amendment yesterday to say the poll card should suffice. Now, when this scheme was introduced, and forgive my language, but it's late at night, she said the scheme was total bollocks. That was her phrase. And then you had a very respected Conservative parliamentarian, David Willits, former Conservative MP, Conservative Cabinet Minister, now Conservative peer. He spoke against what the government was doing and said that they should broaden the range of ID available. Because he was looking at what happened in Northern Ireland when they first introduced photo ID. Now, Great Britain has 20 times the electorate of Northern Ireland. And when he looked at what happened in 1983 was first introduced there. He then looked what might happen in Great Britain and said there could be up to a million people who lose their votes. And that's very serious. 
on my own calculations, and I've studied elections a long time, I think 10 or 15 seats could change hands because of people not able to vote because they haven't got the government prescribed form of photo ID. I'll talk more to you about this, Chris, in a moment. But I want to bring in Hardeep specifically on this one, Hardeep. I know we're going to talk to you about the policing bill in a moment, Hardeep. And you look at the government website, and I would urge all of our readers uh, and listeners who kind of want to get a a rounded view of this to go to gov.uk. The government's official line on this is that, particularly with photo ID, that there is greater protection for voters. Do you think there's anything to that, Hardy? Mm, I think that's one of the most concerning aspects of this and indeed other bills that are increasingly authoritarian but are wrapped up in the language of protection and, you know, more democracy and preserving our political system. There's very little evidence, as Chris has pointed out, of the need for photo ID and for it to be mandatory. There are very few cases in the last elections that have been held where there have been cases of, you know, people impersonating or, or you know, trying to vote by other means. It's not really a problem. So Certainly not a problem that needs prioritising, in in my view, in terms of the, the sort of failings with our with our political system at the moment. And so you have to ask, why is this legislation deemed necessary? And some are arguing that it's it's merely another prong in the government's culture war. It's again trying to you know clamp down on people uh, who wouldn't actually be natural voters of the Conservative Party. It's trying to send a signal um, about sort of how the Conservatives are operating and and also the, the things that they're setting in track. You know, and we talk a lot about uh, Boris Johnson and Partygate and whether he's going to go and all. All the things around his administration, which we should be doing because he's the prime minister and it's his party that are in power. But this is also so much beyond Boris Johnson because these bills, these changes, uh, whether it be photo ID or the changes to the Electoral Commission, which has always been seen as an independent watchdog, these changes will outlast Boris Johnson. They will be, you know, they're institutional changes which are going to set the tone whether he's there or not. And I think that's the thing that I find really concerning. I I was talking to a, a House of Lords peer about a month ago about these the, the number of these bills which are quite concerning that many in the House of Lords have found concerning and she used the word alarm you know people in her opinion she was saying people should be alarmed by this this is an alarming move from the government uh, particularly because there isn't much of an evidential base to support the need for these changes but I, I coming back to your point agent I think what's really concerning though is it's always wrapped up in the language of advancing freedom advancing protection we see that a lot with uh, Boris Johnson and his government uh, Chris, there are things that I think that most people would regard as positive in this bill, which will eventually become a, an act, that there will be a new sanction for those convicted of intimidation against a candidate. So offenders would be banned from standing for election for five years. There would be greater sanctions against people bringing undue influence 
in terms of how you should vote. So it, that might include physical violence, damage to someone's property or reputation and so on. So the, the range of measures to protect the integrity of the ballot box, which is what the government says is the heart of this, is broader than just photo ID. Yes, indeed. There are parts of the bill which we supported. And I've always said if there's an abuse, cheating, fraud within the system, it's much more with postal votes than it is with people going to the polling station. And I know an election not many years ago when, when the postal votes were examined at the counting station, together with all the votes that had been cast in polling stations, many of the votes, the postal votes, had been tipexed out for the candidate originally voted for and the different cross put in a different space on the ballot paper and somebody clearly had been collecting in a lot of postal votes and altering them so i think the law is quite rightly being changed to uh, avoid uh, some of the abuses you get within the postal vote system but as we were saying a moment ago there is no evidence that there is a real problem in the polling stations and in great britain it's different to northern ireland there's a different political culture in 1983 there were more than a hundred convictions after the 1983 general election of people guilty of personation in Northern Ireland. And so something had to be done and some form of ID, but not photo ID, was introduced as a result. Yet in Great Britain, in our general election and in our European elections of 2019, 48 million votes cast between those two elections. There was just one conviction, one conviction in relation to 48 million votes. So what the government is doing now is spending, they say, £180 million over 10 years, setting up a structure of compulsory photo ID, which I think is wholly disproportionate to the problem. And that's why I say it doesn't really seem to be a coincidence. They've set up a system that makes it hard for the, many of their opponents to vote, whilst easy for many of their supporters. In the United States, Donald Trump has been accused of voter suppression, of making it harder for people belonging to various minorities to cast their vote. Do you honestly think that's what's going on here? Is this the British equivalent of voter suppression? I absolutely do. There are strong links between the British Conservative Party and the Donald Trump Republican Party. And you can look at measures in every state in the United States. And Republicans there are advancing measures to make it hard for people who are less likely to vote Republican to go and vote. And there they have things like registration centres, and you go along to register your vote. But you find there's a town with a lot of poor people in it, and perhaps a lot of black people, but there isn't a registration centre within the town. There's only a registration centre outside of the town, and there's no public transport. So only those people with cars can drive out the town and register to vote. And this is happening across the United States. And I think the Conservative Party has looked at this and thought, ah, oh, that's very clever. That's a good way of trying to make sure that our opponents are less likely to go and vote and we can try and win the election again. One final thing, Chris, because I'm aware that your time is limited in chatting to us. The the restrictions that have been placed on the Electoral Commission, which is essentially set up hitherto as a, an independent watchdog to ensure the fairness of elections, now that will be subject to ministerial guidance. That's right. This has never happened before. 
it was in 1998 when John Major had been very concerned about the reputation of politics generally. He said the Committee on Standards in Public Life. It was then chaired by Lord Neil. And they recommended that there should be an independent body to act as a watchdog. And obviously all the political parties. It was not to be a creature of government in any way. And that was accepted by all the parties in both Houses of Parliament in 2000. And that's been the case in five general elections since then. But now we have a situation where they're saying the Electoral Commission must be uh, having regard to a strategy and policy statement which is written by Michael Gove, the Secretary of State for Leveling Up, etc. Now, Parliament will see what that is, but it comes to Parliament in a way that's take it or leave it. In the Commons, the Conservatives has a big majority, so they get the win everything anyway. And in the Lords, it would be hugely exceptional to turn down a measure um, that was brought forward, which we can't amend in any way and just say no to. So effectively, it is putting one party in control of things. It's a bit like, I think, when I spoke to you last, I said Manchester City won the Premier League last season. So they get to set the rules and they decide they'll be able to play with 13 players this season and all the other teams with nine. <laughs> it's an absurdity in democratic terms. Um, the Electoral Commission, of course, has said that they thought... In fact, eight of their nine commissioners all wrote a letter to Parliament saying they could not function as an independent body if they're under this, this rule. And their spokesman on the radio today gave an example saying one of the issues the Electoral Commission has to work on is trying to register voters. Make sure you don't get the chance to vote unless you're registered. But actually, you have to do a lot of effort to get people registered to vote. And you can do it in different ways. What the independent watchdog tries to at the moment is get everybody registered to vote. But if you're subject to government control, and that's with one party, with a majority in the House of Commons, they can say, what you, we want you to do is concentrate on making sure older people are registered. So we'll check, you know, with people in the uh, old age pensioners, make sure they're all registered to vote. But we don't need to worry too much about trying to go around where people are moving house all the time, young people, students, people who rented accommodation, etc. That would be a terrible interference. And they're trying to say they won't do things like that. But if they weren't going to do things like that, why would they have taken these powers? Mm, that's a, that's an interesting point. Yes, a statement from Lord True, who is the Conservative Cabinet Officer Office Minister, said that the bill was necessary and took a reasonable approach to reforming the accountability of the Electoral Commission whilst respecting its operational independence. And he said the changes will not allow the government to direct the Commission's decision-making nor will it undermine the Commission's other statutory duties. So they're emphatic that this will not compromise the independence of the Electoral Commission, but clearly you and many other people see it very differently. Yes, indeed. In fact, there were 10 Conservative peers who broke the Conservative whip in the vote we had earlier on this issue on Monday to say that this should not happen. We had Conservative peers who say some of their work involves talking to people from countries overseas about democratic standards. And they said, we could not possibly talk to other countries where we're trying to help them improve their governments and democratic systems and say, adopt what's now being imposed in the UK. They were very firmly against this. 
Chris. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed for You're joining us. Uh, uh, Hardeep, this is uh, a, a really kind of fascinating area, I think, around the elections bill. But, of course, the mm-hmm. other bill that's been passed this week is the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. And people might see the fact that these two bills have been passed in the same week and which critics say are going to restrict our freedom, limit our democracy in ways that previous generations would have thought unacceptable. It's it's no coincidence that these two bills are becoming law at the same time. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think one thing I, I would say about uh, the Electoral Commission and the changes proposed to it, which will now become law in terms of its independence, it's really worth remembering that it was the Electoral Commission which investigated the Vote Leave campaign during the EU referendum 2016. Uh, it investigated how it had been spending its money. It was the Electoral Commission that found that it had unlawfully uh, indulged in overspending uh, through this sort of offshoot organisation, Believe. And it was the Electoral Commission that fined the Vote Leave campaign, uh, £61,000, I think, because it broke electoral law. And it referred uh, that law-breaking to the Metropolitan Police which uh, made inquiries but did not decide to pursue it. So we have a very pertinent example of where, you know, it really did act as a watchdog. It did its job and it did have the power to say, actually, something something's not right. I think the the worry is that if there's greater government control over the Electoral Commission, which is meant to be an independent watchdog, you know, does that mean that the government will start sort of shaping electoral law in a way that suits suits them and i think that's really concerning you know at a time in our democracy when a lot of us are looking around and thinking where are the checks and balances it it, it, you know to have a check like an independent watchdog like the electoral commission being uh neutered in this way is is really concerning but i agree with you adrian take your point in that is it a coincidence that in the same week that a measure like the elections that is passed, we also have another law which is going to restrict our ability to go out on the streets and potentially protest against it? You know, we live in a democracy. We don't like something like the elections bill. Uh, we're at liberty, usually, in a democracy to go out, go to Parliament, go to Westminster, uh, go to Parliament Square and say, you know, we don't like this, make some noise and and try to spread that message. But what this new law does is widely expand the powers of the police uh, when it comes to protest and policing protest. It allows them greater powers of stop and search, which are already controversial. It allows uh, protests to be shut down uh, or refused in advance uh, on the grounds of they're causing nuisance or excessive noise. Um, and I think that is a really, really serious position to be in. And and I think it's meant to not only just crush, sort of almost literally crush protests, I think it's, for me, what's really worrying is it's also metaphorically trying to crush uh, the spirit of protest and what that stands for. And again, people who perhaps wouldn't naturally be conservative supporters or voters, uh, it, it, it's meant to give a signal, I think, alongside all of these other laws of a government that is very hard line, that is it's it's their way or it's, you know, nowhere, really. And I but, think... I mean, what, there, will be an, there, yeah. will be, there will be an element, Ardeep, won't there, whereby... 
these measures, which include, just so we're clear on this, the, giving police the powers to impose conditions on noise, the amount of noise generated mm. by protesters, mm. they will allow them to impose restrictions on one-person protests and public mm. assemblies as well. There will be an element of all of that with which many readers of the tabloids like the Daily Mail and The Sun, which will endorse this bill, many readers will nod their heads in sage agreement and think, oh, this is great. We don't want people, you know, blocking uh, access to petrol forecourts. We don't want people chaining themselves to the railings. Good on the government for doing this. Yeah, and I think there's, uh, you know, I don't think the Home Secretary or the Prime Minister were big fans of the protests we've seen in the last year and a half in this country, whether that be Extinction Rebellion or Black Lives Matter. I don't think either of those protest movements have been met with joy. And I think the big part of what we're seeing now is in response to those those campaigning groups. Uh, and we've got to ask ourselves whether this response from the government is proportionate. There may be people, as you say, Adrian, in the country that don't like, you know, the disruption that's being caused. You know, we saw just today at petrol stations and things like that by activists around the climate emergency. You know, they may hold that opinion. But, you know, is this a proportionate response? And we live in a democracy. And I think that's that's the really important thing. A democracy can't just be this sort of abstract term that we we just have as a symbol, which increasingly it feels like to me is what's happening. You know, we have a prime minister who's broken the law but stays in power. Uh, we have a government that is neutering an election's watchdog, which is meant to be independent, uh, clamping down on protests because they might be too noisy. You know, a democracy isn't just a democracy because we say it is. It has to it has to feel like that. We have to feel like we have rights and those rights always need to be balanced. People are very much at liberty to not want to be disrupted by Extinction Rebellion, for example, or Black Lives Matter. But those people's rights to show their discontent with an elected government in a democracy is it also needs to be taken into account. I just don't think this is this is a proportionate response. And I remember talking to Shami Chakrabarti party in December, who was the former attorney, shadow attorney general under Jeremy Corbyn uh, as leadership of the Labour Party. And she, for many years, led Liberty, uh, the, the group Liberty. And she was saying that what was really concerning about uh, this bill is that it kind of, you know, applies terror legislation or the elements that underpin terrorist legislation about threats and risk and sort of um, harm to people who are protesting. And that's a massive leap forward in terms of protest law in this country. There's one provision in the bill, Hardeep, as well, which many people would regard as being a, an attack on the traveller community. This provision says that someone residing on land was causing noise that damages the environment could be committing an offence. Anti-traveller. Oh, I think we've lost Hardeep for a moment. Let's see if I can bring in uh, Davey Moore. Hello, Davey. Hello. Yes, it's me again. How are we? Excellent, my friend. Go on. What do you want to well, say? Well, I just Dave? wanted to say, and obviously with the greatest respect to Hardeep, because I love what you guys do, and especially you, Hardeep, I don't think we do live in a democracy. I think that this might be the death knell for it. Obviously, that's not to say that we won't again. But we, we can't really say that we live in a democracy where we're not allowed to exercise our democratic right to protest. It is, I would go so far as to say it's a human right. And I think 
once we've brushed off the dust of focusing on how ridiculous the situation that we found ourselves in is, we really quickly need to look at how to strike while the iron's hot and organise. And I think that it doesn't just come down to a national effort. I think when it comes down to combating the elections bill, it's too easy to subject big-scale campaigns about elections to interference, as we know from, you know, the dreaded B-word, Brexit, but um, making smaller campaigns on a local level and then having a consensus across the entirety of the UK would be something that we really need to look at with interest because I don't know how else we could ever fight back against legislation this oppressive is is my sort of opinion whether that's right or wrong i don't know no well all i'd say to you dave is i i mean i think there are things that we need to fear and really need to be concerned about and there is i'd certainly agree a kind of an erosion of our freedoms in both of these bills but i mean it doesn't take away democracy does it that that's an exaggeration surely i'm sure it sounds like it is but when you look at the disenfranchisement of like did they say roughly two and a half million voters obviously it's not complete you know restriction from voting but putting barriers in is always going to restrict some people to exercise their right to vote. And then when you also say, we're going to do things, and we're not saying you can't protest, but what we're saying is you have to get permission from the police to protest. Most of the protests that have happened have happened as a result of the police because you had um, BLM. A lot of the protests I went to were specifically talking about horrific things that the police have done to people of colour. Or, um, you know, we saw the vigil for Sarah Everard. That was broken up by the police when we had protests where people were trying to just peacefully say we do not want this bill police in bristol were hitting people on the back of the head with their shields so i mean it depends on what democracy means to you but to me democracy would be the right to be able to exercise our our opinions and our feelings openly and democratically to people and we can't i mean um just to say as well i've just seen a tory politician tweet that they're bringing in some kind of legislation in universities to fine people for saying things that they don't agree with and then saying that that's free speech. So, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll leave that one for another day. I'll part of that one. Thank you for joining in, though, Davey. Uh, let's bring uh, in Omar Moore. Hello, Omar. You're right. Regular contributor. How are you doing? You're right. Very good there, Adrian. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you, everybody. Appreciate you always, uh, Adrian, for bringing up these very important forums that we're speaking in. I just wanted to make a, a few quick points. Um, I, I would certainly say that there is an authoritarianism in my native country that is definitely happening, certainly happening here in the United States. But definitely uh, in my native country, the UK, authoritarianism is absolutely on the rise. Um, I think one of the things that I would point out, just as a further illustration, um, is that these ingredients have, in some ways, for many years in the UK, been there before. Now, what, what do I mean by that? Well, very simply this. If you go back to the 1820s and the vagrancy laws and the sus laws that were generated from that, these things have been percolating for a long time. And I think it's not so much that the events of history repeat themselves. It's that the ingredients of history are there and are constant and they get massaged or they grow or they wither away a bit and then they come back. 
And if you look at the 1820s, you look at these sus laws that had been a major feature and still are in some ways, a major feature of uh, life in the UK with the police and the way they're enforced. They were always enforced a lot of times, obviously against the poor, but predominantly against black people. And then those laws continue to peak themselves in the 1970s and even in the late 2000s. But they're still always here. I look back at the mangrove nine back in the early 1970s late 1960s early 1970s the mangrove nine who were a group of uh, people black people who owned their own businesses in london uh, owned their own uh, places the police would just come in there and smash their businesses up smash them to bits for no reason just come in there racially abuse the uh, people who owned those businesses perfectly legally owning their businesses and they would be attacked and harassed by the police this is something that is a continuing theme rather than a repeated one. And I think now it's been massaged and it's been tinkered with as usually as black people as the test cases for what the larger society of black people, well, black people and white people and everyone else is going to be facing. And a lot of governments do these heinous things. And so my, my point is, just in summary, is that I think what you're seeing now is a culmination of what has gone before, of, of what has happened to black people in the United Kingdom predominantly for, for decades before. And now you're seeing something in these two bills, in, in really a week of infamy in my native country, with these two bills. And of course, I think Lord Renard put it quite correctly, that uh, here in the United States, goodness gracious, I mean, all of the issues we're voting here uh, and the laws here in many states where you're not allowed to, in one state in Georgia, you're not allowed to pass out drinking water to people who are waiting on these ridiculously long lines to begin with. So there's all kinds of things we have to clean up here. But I, I would just say, just my, my final point here, is the media is critically important to why things are the way they are. The right-wing media, the Barclays brothers, um, uh, Paul Dacre and all the rest of them, who have massaged many a person in, in the UK to start thinking and believing that um, uh, these kinds of pro uh, these crackdowns on protests are, are the right thing, and they're obviously not authoritarianism i mean i i wouldn't say it's democracy that's crumbling although it's certainly withering authoritarianism is the thing that's happening and i think hardeep i totally agree with what she said about these laws and these things that are going to be lasting long beyond uh, an, an authoritarian named Boris Johnson. And I thank you again, Adrian, for allowing me to have my say here. Thank no, you. No, Omar, Omar, you made some very good points. And Hardeep, I think this touches on something that you and I have discussed previously as well. And you have this theory that Britain as an empire was used to being authoritarian, but traditionally it was authoritarian abroad and could afford in some ways to be relatively liberal at home but that authoritarian impulse that it used to visit on countries all around the world well it's denied that because britain no longer has an empire but that impulse is still there and in some ways being played out through bills like these Sorry, sorry. I didn't hear the first bit of that, Adrian. I, no, I, I was just saying, drawing on, Omar was, was drawing a connection with, you know, some really old-fashioned mm -hmm. laws, long time ago laws that, that still play out in the UK. Things like sus laws, for example, which kind of get reinvented and renamed, but are essentially still there. And I was just making the point that you've got this theory about empire and how the authoritarian impulse of empire which Britain can no longer act upon beyond its borders, has somehow come home literally to roost. 
Yes. And actually, it's interesting you bring that up because what I've also argued and sort of speculated is that Boris Johnson's government in particular is has that sort of is almost a neo-imperial impulse. I, I really do see it like that in terms of how it um yeah how it sees itself in relation to the population at large uh in many in many ways these authoritarian tendencies are you know yeah as omar is saying they're they're not entirely new they are sort of a dark part of a dark past which we don't really want to confront uh, also which played out in countries around the world and never really uh, in Britain itself but I think what you see with Johnson is is very much uh, a sort of would-be imperial prime minister I mean at any given chance uh, or opportunity we're always hearing how world-beating Britain is and and how we're global Britain even though we've left the EU and we're going to go back to to sort of ruling you know how we used to rule the world on our own and go back to some greatness. That's what the Brexit project was always talking about as led by Johnson. And I think certainly there is, you know, there's that sort of grandeur. But on the other side of that is something quite dark, which is an authoritarian impulse, which we are seeing across across many areas now, uh, whether it be protest or elections or the attitude towards refugees. uh, It's definitely there. Arna Ribeiro. Hello, Arna. You're right. Yes. Hi. Um, thank you for allowing me to speak. Um, what you mentioned the word alarmed earlier on, and I am alarmed by what's going on. Plus, plus, plus. I grew up in a dictatorship, and over the last few years, what's happened? I've been in the UK for thirty years. And I used to live in France before, but what has been happening in the UK, you know, all these things that we talk about, I think is is not just the election bill. When you when you see the stripping of public assets, like the privatization of the NHS, the you know, our water's privatized, that's private. You know, it's a bit like Putin in Russia. You know, where nothing else belongs to the public. Every every uh, main service has been sold out. You know, and you have no control, you know, of the water prices and how water is provided, polluting the rivers. You know, so there is that sector as well. Then there's somebody talked about the university crackdown, you know, or free, free speech. There is the electoral thing. There is a protest. I think there is an overall, you know, it's like a restriction from all sides. And I am very, it, it triggers me a lot, you know, so I'm very aware of these things because I've lived them before. And it doesn't, when I say to my British friends here, and I said, look, dictatorship doesn't start with the tanks in the street. You know, you don't need that. It's almost that invisible thing that people don't realize if you haven't lived that before. Until it's and, too late. And, and, and Arna, when you when you talk about that, do you think that we are on the road to dictatorship, or is it is it something a bit more subtle than that? I've, I've kind of been keen in this conversation to draw us away from some of the more perhaps hysterical. I'm not suggesting you're being hysterical, but some of the more <laughs> hysterical headlines about you know the end of democracy and the the end of the right to protest, because we are, we do still have the right to vote and we will still have the right to protest. But these are tendencies, aren't they, really? And as you say, authoritarianism, totalitarianism doesn't start 
with the tanks on the street. <laughs> Maybe that that's where it ends. But but it, it is interesting that you tie these strands together in terms of uh, the lack of public ownership, the, the sale of public assets and so on, and these the, bills as well. It, it the, kind of the, a- the, you know, the right-wing media pro, uh, kind of promoting divisiveness, divisiveness in the population. I lived through all this stuff you know, in real life. You know, what's interesting is that many of the things that you describe, the, the, for example, uh, the control by the state of public assets such as water or the NHS, and of course the NHS, again, is still controlled by the government. There may well be privatised elements of it, but it is still controlled by the government and it is still free to use... Uh, at, at the point of need, so at the moment, it, at it, the moment. It, it is important. Yeah, well, yeah, but th- those kind of some people on the the right would see those monolithic parts of the state. You know, the fact that water you didn't have a choice where to get your water from, the fact that you couldn't choose your energy supplier, the fact that there is only one health service in town. Some people on the right would see that as a form of authoritarianism. No, but you selling a water company to or to an energy provision to a foreign company or to Saudi Arabia or to whoever it is, how do you having more uh, more freedom there that now belongs to a different government somewhere else? I find that very tricky. <laughs> yeah, well, I always found it tricky when we had uh, our train companies, which we were told we, we couldn't have publicly owned because of the EU. Then parts of our rail network were sold off to Dutch and n- German national railways. It was like, oh, wait a minute, we can't have national railways because of the EU, but our EU colleagues somehow can maintain these uh these state-run railways. You see what's happening now with the Russia mm. and the gas and the dependency when things go a bit odd, you know, uh, the control of very basic things like gas and, you know, electricity and water is in the hands of a country who has gone rogue. Mm. Mm. It's very Anna, tricky. Yeah, Anna, thank you. Let's bring in uh, Mike Goldsworthy. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? You're right. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. And I've very much been enjoying this conversation and would just like to drop in an an observation, a a psychology observation about the nature of authoritarian states and, and those running it. And that is the sense of victimhood that never goes away, even when people accumulate power and run an entire country. Now, recently... um, Janusz Jancha, the the president of Slovenia, has been booted out by a new guy coming in, um, Golob, who um, uh, basically ran on a ticket to restore democracy in Slovenia. And I used to live in Slovenia. And Janusz Jancha has been prime minister three times. And yet he would still regularly stand up in parliament and whine on and whine on about what a victim he is of everyone and so he went on the on you know as he kept coming back into power and kept trying to consolidate more and more and more lopping off uh you know 
any opposition he could find in the media. But you also see it, for example, in Donald Trump when he came to power and um, was paranoid about the, you know, the media trying to, to, to get him down. You see, for example, when Orban won again recently and in his thank you speech, he listed all of the people that he had to defeat in order to get it. There's always, no matter how powerful you are, this in authoritarian mindsets, this paranoia, um, but not just paranoia, it's also a sense that you're still a victim. And I think we've seen it in this country as well, with this government, that they can win on 43% of the vote and get 60% of the parliament, but they still go on about remain a plots and woke mobs that are that are going to pull down their culture lefty lawyers that need to be defeated and of course there needs to be punishment for the supreme courts and other court structures that dared to hold the rule of law above them so what worries me um in all of this is that you're absolutely seeing these kind of traits within our own government now as it confidently starts marching down that slippery slope doing what all authoritarian regimes start off by doing which is targeting their enemies in the long-standing institutions of the judiciary, of the media, look at BBC and Channel 4 and what they've tried to push there, um, in people's right to protest, um, and making it all tools of their own ability to stay in power. So the reverence of their own power above the country that they're meant to be serving. But but I just wanted to impress upon people, it's that sense of victimhood which never goes away, even when they're sitting in the top positions of the country. They I think, still uh, think Mark, they're victims. I think this is a beautiful observation. And let me respond to you as well. There are a couple of things that you've said. One is that you mentioned Johnson's 43%. I clocked on social media today a comment in somebody pointing out that with 43% of the vote in France, Marine Le Pen was absolutely smashed by Macron with 43% of the vote in the UK. Boris Johnson has an 80-seat majority. I just thought that was an amazing thing. But this mindset thing, I think this is brilliant observation because... Of course, you get these white middle class columnists in right wing newspapers complaining about cancel culture, writing about cancel culture, and of course, getting handsomely rewarded for it. And so much of the Brexit project as well, though, is about this sense of, of grievance, wasn't it? It's about what they them the foreigners are doing to us and uh exactly this i don't know if it's necessarily linked to authoritarianism but it's it's definitely in the air in britain at the moment i think i i think it is part of that that bully mentality when they get caught out or in the, when they're on the back foot suddenly play the victims um you you see that in a lot of uh, court cases you see that in a lot of dynamics and i think that's the kind of power grabbing bullying mindset that quickly pivots to being a victim um that is what you're dealing with when when you get that individual psychology magnified up to the um control of the state i love that hardy did you want to come in on that just this great observation from mike 
Yeah, Mike always always gives us food food for thought, um, and I think you know, gosh, I mean, obviously it's very 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 different. Thank God, uh, we're not living like this here. But the parallels with sort of Russia and uh, the victim, the continued sort of victimhood there, and the lack of learning from the past, and sort of drumming up uh, this notion of grandeur and victimhood, it, it certainly seems to be prevalent in Russian society. And I would say that we need to watch that tendency here within our current government. Just one thing that you you were saying, Adrian, which I thought was a really interesting point. You were, you were saying that, you know, one person's author, authoritarian um, authoritarian tendencies might seem to another as a, a form of freedom. You know, how in a democracy can we ever all agree on what is authoritarian, what's acceptable, what's yeah. sort of um, uh, to, to, to laissez-faire? And I guess that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, and in a democracy, you're going to, you know, we have people who don't agree about things like that. That's the whole point. But what we do have is uh, other fund- more fundamental principles, which are supposed to underpin our system, like the rule of law, like adherence to fundamental human rights that we've signed up to. Uh, you, you know, and I think that's what, again, is really worrying that, uh, you know, are these bills that are being passed, are they in accordance with, uh, you know, the rule of law, uh, wider concepts of equity and natural justice? Uh, Are they in accordance with, you know, Britain and its constitution and how power and the checks and balances of our system have always worked? And I think that's really important that those kind of fundamental concepts sit beyond all all of this politics, regardless of the people in power. We're meant to have these principles which sit beyond that. But I think what is so concerning about this this raft of bills that have now gone through is that they seem to to not adhere to that at all and call into question, you know, you know, in a democracy, if you can't protest your point, well, we still have democracy, we still have a physical system called a democracy, but it's when the people themselves don't feel that they live in a democracy and they start to disengage, they start to feel like that system doesn't work for them. And then I think it is an interesting question at that point, if you feel something's not democratic, can it be so? Uh, But I fear that we're losing... Sorry to interrupt there, Hardy. Except that, except that, there are people who can feed that sense of unhappiness, aren't there? There are people mm-hmm. who can feed that sense of it's not worth it, that your voice yeah. doesn't count. And and I think this is always the balance I think that we have to hold in, in being critical and properly holding up uh, our democracy mm-hmm. and our uh, bills like these, holding them up to the light, is, is not to in, in some way make people feel so powerless that it's not worth reacting and then it's not worth responding because that is exactly what authoritarianism would want us to do. Yeah, it's it's true because I think that's what the government in in a large way hopes will happen, that people will just kind of give up and think, oh God. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that this is it. The, the last point I'll end on is if ever there was a time where we need to look at our our democracy, really hold a mirror up to it. It really is now in so many ways because of so many things uh, we're in a perilous position. But that is also uh, a time when, uh, time when people 
people can finally start having discussions, which I think really needs to happen uh, about a constructive way out of this. And as one of the contributors said, uh, you know, we d- there needs to be a coming together of people who care about democracy and to fight for it and not take it for granted and think it's just always going to exist. And in a way, that's what we need rather than feeling hopeless. And, you know, that's exactly as you say, that's what authoritarians count on. Yeah, uh, very interesting as well that you mentioned a couple of things there. One about the importance of the rule of law. And of course, at the moment, we have a prime minister who broke the law and has not resigned. And you talked about regard for human rights. Now, there are members of the Conservative Party, particularly on the right of the Conservative Party and the newspapers who support them, who have spent years decades rubbishing the European Convention on Human Rights, conflating it deliberately, I think, with the European Union. They are two completely separate things. But the European Convention on Human Rights, which is there to protect us all and to which Britain is a signatory, is is regularly, routinely rubbished as though human rights, we don't need to worry about those here. Mm, Exactly. And there's a sort of as you say, we don't need to worry about those hairs. There's an exceptionalism, which I think ties us up in all sorts of problems. You know, well, it's never going to happen here. We're not Trump's America. We're not like Erdogan. We're not Orbán's Hungary. We're the mother of parliaments. Why would our democracy be under attack? Why would our human rights uh, be in question? And I think that is exactly the attitude that makes our political system so so vulnerable. And also at the moment, you know, Ukrainians are they're giving up their lives. They're giving up their lives fighting to live in a society in which, uh, you know, which is about the rule of law and human rights and integration with Europe. And I think it always astounds me that we have a democracy. We have such a, you know, in some ways established system and yet we're so we're, we're almost hacking off bits of bits of our democracy willingly when other people are are dying for for it and everything that comes with it which i think should provide provide us with some much needed perspective jeff phillips has been waiting for a while to speak to us hello jeff hello thank thank you for um, for letting me um, ring in um i <clears throat> I'm I'm really grateful for this conversation, and I think that um, I think that some of the things that that Mike and Hardeep have said are are really salient and completely important. And the thing that I wanted to uh, to add in, as an American and as a person who has lived in this country for nearly 20 years and loves it deeply, is um, we we are uh, living. If you, if you take what has just happened yesterday in the House of Lords, and you and you put it in the context of the the number of the bills that have been uh, pushed through uh, in this Parliament uh, together, um, we we are we are facing a an authoritarian consolidation moment. Really, um, this this is not um all that unusual uh in relation to what's happening in the US it is not all that unusual in relation to what's happening in 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 Orbán's Hungary um because a number of the people who are the biggest fans of uh so-called national conservatism and the national conservative movement as it's called um are 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 holding up uh you know Orbán's Hungary as a model 
to be followed. And, uh, you know, Orban has just uh, himself engineered his own victory um, in, in the last few weeks. And um, he has done that off the back of being able to control the, the judiciary, being able to uh, uh, sort of invite his ruling party to the to the trough of corruption um he has controlled the means of voting he has uh he has done many of the same things that we've seen pass or nearly get passed in this parliament um and we have many of us been distracted by the the kind of uh, face melting level of uh scandal that has been uh, a hallmark of the Johnson administration or the Johnson government, you know, the kind of outrage that we all feel about, you know, getting away with lying and, you know, uh, members of parliament um, uh, watching porn <laughs> in, you know, on the, on the house floor. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, all of these things um, have, have, have amounted to a kind of covering over of uh, power grabbing with scandal, right? Um, yeah. It seems to me that uh, it, the, the link with Orban, I mean, I, I think maybe maybe a tad far-fetched in relation to Johnson and, and his government, but where I think there is a connection is simply the desire to hold on to power for power's sake, almost. Well, you know? yeah, that's, that's true to one degree, but, but, mm. you, but, you, but you have to reckon with the fact that a number of the people that, um, that were that – were, welcomed into uh the the tory world you know the the reason why cameron called a referendum was to try to marginalize ukip right mm. it was to it was to try to get rid of that uh um kind of entryism into the tory party yeah and he's his own right wing effect exactly exactly yeah. and th yeah. and that didn't and that didn't work mm. but but what did happen was all of those people wound up getting normalized within uh, the Tory world once Brexit was, uh, once the referendum happened. And I think Nick Cohen writing in The Guardian a few weeks ago is absolutely right that there is, there is it's very difficult to draw a line at the moment between um, any uh, normal Tories and the far right. Uh, you have people who've within the Tory party, like, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Toby Young, who's an outright outspoken eugenicist who has, you know, been very much a part of smashing uh, the university sector in the name of uh, normalizing race, science um, and eugenicism. And, um, you know, the, the, these kinds of people who... Um, who 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 are in in the penumbra of the Tory Party, if you like? Who? Yeah, I mean, who, I, would, I would I would I would certainly draw a distinction between many ordinary members of the Conservative Party and many ordinary Conservative MPs and a wing of the Conservative Party. Yes, I do recognise what you're saying. I, I I agree with that. Yeah. But but I, but I think I think that the I think the overall point, whether we you know whether we quibble about you know, where the lines are, I think it's similar to Donald Trump's Republican Party. Um, they're not... The, the mechanism that helps us 
uh, draw a line around executive impunity is really blurred at the moment. I think that is very much true. Jeff, thank you very much indeed. Omar, you wanted to come in on that, I think. Yes, and thanks again, uh, Adrian. Um, there's a couple of things. Uh, I think certainly uh, I, I actually uh, am more toward your view, Adrian, that the Conservative Party in the UK is not what the Republican Party is at the moment. It is is developing into that, though. I mean, the Republican Party here in the United States is certainly very clear where it is. It casts its lot with the authoritarian uh, and the fascists, if you will, and is certainly doing a lot in, in government to, to show us this every day. Um, the Conservative Party, what you have, is a certain wing, as you point out, of the party, particularly in the in the parliamentary wing, um, the the cabinet wing of Johnson's administration, Johnson's government, that I think is the um, absolute uh, going into the authoritarian mode for sure. Um, but I think what is troubling is that you have a lot of other conservatives who wait while they may not be like those in the Johnson's cabinet that aren't, I think, um, really doing a lot to push back against a lot of the things that are going on in the cabinet. So I think that that's a problem that we should be really paying some attention to. And then secondly, one of the things I wanted to come back to, and I think both Mike and Hardy talked about aspects of this, certainly with the victimhood, um, and quite I quite 100% agree with both of them on this and how, I mean, this scales back to way back to Hitler and Mussolini. They did this exact same thing. And what they tried to do is, you know, use this sense of victimhood and to transfer that to the people who, you know, who were in their countries uh, to try to get them to think that the hurt of Hitler or the hurt of Mussolini was somehow their hurt as well. And this way of manufacturing consent and, and within that you you look at the news media again i go back to this point just to close because i think the media is so critical to all of this if we're talking about authoritarianism if we're talking about what hardeep talked about in terms of worrying that people wouldn't just dis wouldn't get discouraged because certainly i think that is a goal of authoritarian governments and certainly this one in, in england is and the uk is um my whole point is this manufacturing of consent through media it's very important we've seen this throughout whether it's Mussolini whether it's Hitler whether it's even someone like a Silvio Berlusconi in a different way owning the the printing presses or owning a media empire like Berlusconi did we look at Boris Johnson I mean these are different degrees uh, certainly of authoritarianism and uh, obviously there's some profound differences but i'm just talking about the ingredients of these things um with boris johnson of course a, a daily telegraph writer and all the rest of it writing columns in the daily telegraph for many years before he uh, became what he became now so i i just think that media part of this is so very important and key because if you don't have the media here trying to manufacture consent through the billionaires who own it whether it's the Rupert Murdoch's, whether it's the Barclay Brothers, whether who the uh, people who own Fox News, whomever, Rupert Murdoch, um, you really don't have, I think, a lot of this even happening, or at least it's more difficult for it to begin to foment. So I yeah. do appreciate, again, Adrian, your your time, and, and yeah. thanks. Uh, Omar, you're making a good point, and, and Hardeep, I guess, you know, one of the reasons that we, we've got Byline Times is, is a recognition of the fact that so much of the media is what's described these days as a kind of client media, isn't it? People who are only too happy to repeat the words 
of their lords and masters, the the people who mm. the people who they support politically, and there's always been an element of that, I think, in political journalism. But at the moment, there is a a, a very real sense, I think, from people that that, that we have a, a truly distorted media landscape, and and the 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 distortion, I would suggest, appears to be growing. You know, we've got GB News, we've got Murdoch's new channel, we've got Ofcom being very light touch on outspoken stations like talk radio for example so you know that i'm not necessarily painting this as a right versus left issue but there is a very clear tilt of our media in a particular direction yes i'm i'm really glad omar made this point because i think it's a really important one that uh, a healthy functioning press in a democracy should be the antidote to you know all of the things we've been talking about they should be uh holding uh you know power to account uh in an independent way in the public interest and i think what has happened over many years not just under boris johnson's government although i think it has all sort of crystallized under him and the media and the political classes have sort of merged with people like him and michael gove who are former journalists and i think in the commons the other day boris johnson even said i'm a journalist i was a journalist he's still considers himself in in that world but i think what's been lost quite heavily is this notion that the media is a pillar of democracy so in a democratic system it's one of it's a key part of it it's not just something that's tagged on on uh, you know on the side it certainly shouldn't be something that is merged with an arm of the state i.e the executive it's supposed to be part it's supposed to be the antidote and the distortions are increasing not least because we have all of these new things as you say ventures popping up adrian but i think because those structural problems have always been there in terms of who owns these newspapers which are still quite influential regardless of social media these newspapers are still sort of the mediators between the messaging and the public discourse that we have uh you know how close is that relationship to the politicians they're meant to be holding to account. Whose interests are they actually advancing? The interest of proprietors, a certain class of people, an elite, or the public? And because none of these structural issues which were sort of laid bare in quite a stark way in the phone hacking scandal were never really dealt with obviously the people who benefit from it don't want to deal with it uh it continues and continues and i think under johnson uh we you know quite a few byline times writers brian cathcart peter oborn have said that you get this media political class which is in essence sort of a merger and that's where a lot of the problems are emerging. And I think, you know, the mainstream media has been, elements of it have been really good over party gates and things like that, bringing those scandals to light. But I always say the fact that they've done such a good job over party gate shows that when they do want to hold people to account, they can. So we should be asking the question, why haven't they been doing that before? Because party gate is certainly, is certainly not the only scandal or even the most significant that Johnson's government, for example, should have been held to account over. 
Seems to be a good moment to remind you you're listening to Byline Radio or if you're on catch-up on the Byline Times podcast with me, Adrian Goldberg. Our guest is Hardeep Matharu, the editor of the Byline Times. And if you want to support independent, fearless journalism, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times, which is a brilliant monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep. And your subscription also helps to fund the podcast and the radio and Byline TV as well. Check out bylinetimes.com, our brilliant news breaking website to find out where and how you can subscribe that's via bylinetimes.com uh, Anna wants to make another comment hello Anna welcome back go on hi uh, hi Adrian thank you um, a little comment on uh, what um, Hardip was saying about the you know, control of the media or you know many billionaires owning the media he has always been there it just feels like is um, increasing that with, you know, putting a top Tory on the BBC and selling Channel 4. And I think those things uh, are done for a purpose. They're not random. So that is one comment. Um, on the importance of uh, independent and local media, um, you know, I was thrilled when I uh, heard about the the different bylines to different areas of, of the UK, because I think that's very important. Uh, Tim Snyder, I don't know if you know the book called Our Malady. He, no, I don't know that. No. Oh, it's a fast. It's a very, very good book, and he talks about that. You know who he is? Uh, Tim Snyder is a historian, uh, professor at Yale, and he's an author. And this book, Our Malady, he touched exactly on that, on the importance of independent local media and how the lack of that in the UK, in the US, created this problem that people, uh, whether it's COVID or whether it's other things in democracy, people are not aware of it because nobody's reporting. So and all the media is held by, you know, Murdoch or other billionaires <laughs> yeah yeah well we certainly so, had i would say a weakening of regional and local uh, news coverage as well in the uk i mean there is still uh, i suppose the backstop of bbc local radio we, people can argue about how well that does a job of really scrutinizing politicians but it does a job uh, we do have as i say that as a backstop but if you look at the state of many of our local city and town newspapers they're in a, a pretty sickly way certainly you know in the days when i started journalism when we had packed newsrooms and these days many local journalists sadly are simply engaged in clickbait and i don't blame them for that but that is the industry now in which they are involved much less sure of local politicians and so on. The other, the other point has to do with uh, with you all touching different ways about, um, you know, um, I think was Jeff was talking about that uh, it, it, to a certain extent we've been distracted by, you know, the porno video and the party gate and I, whilst all the bills are serious, you know, kind of serial long, long lasting things are passing um like this latest bill. Yeah, no, I, I the, think that's a really good, that's a really good point actually. In, in uh, relation, Anna. and, and in, if you think of the the column inches and the radio minutes that have been devoted to whether Angela Rayner did or didn't cross her legs to distract. Correct. Boris. Yes. 
Uh, and as you say, the pornography story compared to the elections bill, compared to the policing bill, which is what we started off at least discussing tonight, they have been nowhere in comparison to those. Let me just say, sorry, yeah, there is an importance sure. to the Angela Rayner story, of course, because it does you know, betray a kind of misogyny in Parliament and, and the same with the pornography story, I suppose. But, you, you know, the, 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 there's a completely disproportionate amount of time spent on those stories compared to these very important stories that we've been talking about tonight. Just uh, on that topic, is there's a... There's, um a phrase of Stephen Bannon that every time comes to my head where he talks about showering the zone. Mm. You know, like throwing mm. so many things at the same time. And it's always uh, like, it's almost like you, you throw so many balls at once at the media or at the public that uh, you, you try to catch some or talk, uh, talk or investigate some of them, but other ones will pass through kind of thing, that principle. And the last thing I wanted to say also in this topic, if anybody, I'm sure many of the listeners here have seen, um, have watched the Dominic Cummins uh, Hollow, the Hollow Man lecture in 2014, where he set out his plan is one by one everything that has been happening over the last few years that we've been talking about in this program, every single one of them. I really recommend people to watch that. You just type on YouTube, Dominic Cummings, The Hollow Man Speech. It's Appreciate terrifying. your contribution, Anna. Thank you. Uh, let's bring let's bring in uh, Cog. Hello, Cog. Welcome to Byline Radio. Hi, uh, thanks for hearing me out. Um, I, I hope you can hear me okay. Yeah, loud and clear. Go on, Cox. Superb. Um, uh, well, I'm just a lowly TikTok creator, but I did my master's degree specialising in Third Reich history, uh, specifically the uh, the culture of Third Reich. Um, and uh, I, I can contribute perhaps a little bit to the conversation, maybe bring some en enlightenment uh, here and there. Uh, I do also have COVID, um, and I'm currently dying, so I apologise if I cough a lot throughout this. No worries. Um, I, I hope it really doesn't prove fatal, Cog. There are some things you should joke about. <laughs> Go on. Yes, <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, yeah, so uh, I see lots of similarities between um, fascist states and uh, our current political media space. Um, in particular, I see a lot of um, the, of the uh, traits which we usually associate with uh, fascism. Fascism is quite hard to pin down in terms of a definition. Um, so we usually take it like, um, it's, it's a bit complex, but it, we take it like um, the, the way that Wittgenstein used the term games. Uh, a, a game has no single set definition because a game can be many different things. Uh, a game of chess has very little in relation to a game of football. Um, so we usually go with traits that they often have in common. And the, the traits which I, I just jotted down, for example, are like anti-liberalism, anti-cosmopolitanism, hyper-masculinity, anti-feminism, anti-judicial sentiments, uh, palogenetic nationalism, which essentially means like national rebirth, um, and uh, anti-intellectualism, a sort of dual legality that there's a lot more I could go on. Um, but uh, a, a fundamental misunderstanding, I think, um, with that borne in mind, there's lots of similarities between the current direction, political direction, Overton window of our country, um, and fascist Third Reich authoritarian states. Um, it's worth bearing in mind that the structures of the Third Reich, the decision-making was not exactly top-down, um, but was what we, uh, since the v Bavaria project in the 1980s, has been referred to as um, a, a sort of cumulative radicalization. 
Um, uh, Carl, can I just interrupt you there? I'm sure. Maybe I'm on my own on this, but I, I feel uncomfortable. I, I'm very happy to talk about the UK's authoritarian creep, and I've done that on a number of occasions on the Byline Times podcast, and the, hear the concerns about the policing bill and hear the concerns about the um, the other bill that we're talking about tonight so long mm. ago that we started talking about. I forgot about the policing bill uh, and also the elections bill. But kind of when we start invoking the Third Reich, I, I I just feel uncomfortable with that. I think I think there are there are things to be concerned about, and and I think it's right and proper that we investigate them. But when we're talking about you know people responsible for genocide, I, yes, I, I think I think that's I, I I've I just feel that that's not quite where this debate is really. Well, it, the thing is, uh, I think. Um... Uh, I think you've got to bear in mind that uh, I, I, I think there's a certain need to be careful with comparisons, but that's why we go into the depth that we go into when we're discussing these things, right? Well, when you say uh, we, think, you mean you. Well, I, I think blatant <laughs> comparisons, ju- just going, oh, well, you know, introducing, um, you know, uh, for example, I, I don't think that um, if you were to trivialise uh um trivialize the the holocaust by comparing um uh what's the the term i'm looking for covid passports to like anything to do with the holocaust i i don't think that works um however when you're looking at societal structures and particularly when you're talking about it in a post colonial context like hardit was talking about and bringing in uh important ideas about structures um and victimization and the idea that ultimately these cultures being constantly in motion is what empowers authoritarians. I think that is a good context to talk about these things in. Okay. Well, we may have to respectfully uh, disagree on that one. Uh, Hardeep, I I don't know uh, what what you think, but I I just think that the concern that we have about the creeping authoritarianism of the British state is of a different order than the Third Reich, and I just think we ought to be sensitive to that and sensible about that. Mm, yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's been really in, interesting as sort of the Russian invasion has been taking place uh, in Ukraine and looking at Putin and and Peter Jukes and I have made some parallels between uh, him and this, again, this way of thinking about empire and uh, a lost nostalgia that never really existed and how you sort of uh, use that when you, there is a lack of policy, uh, which certainly Boris Johnson's government does. Uh, but been very careful about making those comparisons directly. You know, we're very, we are very, very lucky that we do not live in Ukraine, that we do not live in a country like Russia. I think they are different situations I think, though, this point about needing to be alarmed, you know, it's an interesting debate to even to discuss the situation we're in now, how we got here. Uh, the fact that our civil liberties are being eroded in a number of ways does require us to to look at these 
developments in a certain way through a certain lens. Uh, and I'm not saying that sort of comparisons with the Third Reich are necessarily a, the most appropriate or helpful ones. But I do think we do need to realize that in, in our context, in a British context, this is not normal, right? So it's definitely <clears throat> by comparison to states that have gone down far worse routes, it's obviously uh, there are parallels. But looking just looking at our own state, even by comparison with our own history and how things have been done, uh, even in recent history, these these times don't seem normal. And I think this point about we need to be aware of that, our eyes need to be open to that, and we, we should be alarmed by that. Because yes. I think, you know, as we said, it doesn't start with tanks, tanks in the street. So I think history is always sort of helpful in that we need to know about it we need it to inform us and that's not just our own history but sort of history of all sorts of other countries and what they've been through and how they've confronted their pasts but I think just in comparison with ourselves this is a pretty worrying moment for for Britain oh yeah I wouldn't disagree with that for one moment let's bring in uh, Cheryl Nathan hello Cheryl yeah, hello. Hi, yeah, you're right. Welcome to Byline Radio. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I am um, actually came in late, so I missed. I was just typing. Actually, I did miss the start. Um, said some very interesting it things. It was brilliant. You missed the best bit. Yeah, I probably did. To be honest, <laughs> oh, yeah, I've been doodling away. Um, yeah, I mean, I was just saying, I'm a simple Yorkshire woman. I've been into politics. Well, about not involved totally, but was in unions, etc. I missed it, Mr. Bill, today. Uh, to be honest, I'm totally disenfranchised with a lot of them. For me, every single politician have got their own, seems to have their own interests. There's very few that are actually for the people anymore. They've all got their own agendas, and I think that it's time we had a big, big shake-up mm-hmm. as a country as a whole. Do you do you really think that they're all the same? A lot of them, yeah. Mm. At one time in Leeds, um, especially where I'm from, you knew your councillors. They were out and about regularly. You know, you, they were out for the people. They, you don't see them. You very rarely see them. You very rarely hear of them. They're just there's, I couldn't even tell you who my local um, councillor was. Mm. And I think that uh, grassroots, that each area, each county, you know, if you've got any interest, they should be out there. They should, you know, you should be able to put a name to a face, etc. Lately, you can't. And I think that's where a lot of it stems from. People are getting disenfranchised because they they don't, unless you know them personally or you're in an area where it is you know, sort of talked about and discussed. And mm. and like you say, the media, the local press, it, it's just not out there enough. People aren't getting involved. I was chatting earlier, I don't know if you heard this bit of the conversation, but we were saying that one of the things that authoritarians thrive on is people kind of giving up and people thinking there's nothing I can do. At the moment in this country, we do still have the right to vote, and uh, yeah, just anybody's about to take that away from us. We do still have the right to vote, and we, st- although there are real issues to be concerned about with the with the uh, policing bill, we do still have the right to protest. So, 
for people, John. All I'd say is you've got, you've got, you know, you you have still got these choices, and I'm not. I'd never presume to tell you how to vote or you know who to support or whatever, but. I would just, I would just encourage you to look hard at it and think, you know, really, are they all the same? Because I, I don't think they all are the same, you know. No, the pro- well, they're probably not, but just the ones that tend to get most publicity. Mm. And I think that's that's the media to the media. I mean, we're giving all this publicity lately to the conservatives and what's going on with them. Um, you know, it's it's you look at the House of Parliament, you you can watch it. It's like a comedy show. Half the time, it's like a comedy show, um, and and what's been going on is just you know, <laughs> it's just to put a, a mask and a veil over everything else. The more important issues, like it's been said, I didn't catch that, and it's just ridiculous. We need to be thinking about the bigger issues and and feeding those out, and the press needs to play a part in that as well. I wouldn't disagree with that, Cheryl. Thank you. How deep I mentioned uh, on a broadcast a few days ago that a friend who is a a councillor in the Midlands, a local councillor somewhere in the Midlands, and he said that until recently, anyway, the dishonesty, the lies of Boris Johnson were not a feature on the doorstep. And if people raise them, if opposition parties try to raise the question of Johnson's honesty, at least until very recent times, people would say... They're all at it. They're all liars. And, you know, that sense that Cheryl has that, you know, shrug of the shoulders, he doesn't really make much difference either way who you vote for. And, uh, you know, something I, I, I don't know how you feel, but I think passionately really myself that we've got to challenge that view and encourage people to look hard and discriminate between the good candidates and the bad candidates, you know, knowing yeah. that is life and people might sometimes let you down because that's how it goes sometimes, you know. Mm. And that's not just... That can't just be laid all at Boris Johnson's door. You know, this notion that politicians are all the same, they're all in it for themselves, they're just trying to enrich themselves and and do do well. That has been, that, you know, predates him. It goes back to the MPs' expenses scandal, the Iraq war and the lies and all that sort of thing. So it's, it's, but what's happened is it's, again because it wasn't dealt with as we went along it's now got to this this point where you have Boris Johnson who's willing to exploit that sentiment you know he the whole point about him was he he was this sort of bizarrely anti-establishment man of the people who was leading Brexit and he was he saw that sentiment building and he was he exploited it in two ways which was one you know I politicians don't care about people and delivering for them and yeah they're mainly in it for themselves but i can sort of i can deliver what you want in terms of brexit and also he he also took advantage of it by you know sort of factoring it into his personality you know so people on the doorstep haven't been mentioning it because it's sort of what you get with johnson and weirdly because he he did know about this sentiment that people think they're all in it for themselves and and actually used it uh weirdly that built some kind of authenticity between him and the public uh which has been one one of his you know greatest tools really against the public interest 
Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, let's see what happens in the May elections. I mean, so next week is, is the local elections. Let's see what happens with, with the Conservative Council seats um, across the country. Let's see then if that starts to have an impact. Let's see uh, where we are in a couple of months' time as the cost of living puts so many more people into poverty. I, I think one of the things that's dangerous is when we feel all these things are static. And certainly even on the paper, uh, Peter Jukes always says that some of the younger members of staff of Byline Times, he says, uh, have a sometimes are a bit pessimistic. Uh, and he, he says, well, we live through Thatcher and we knew that, you know, things got bad and bad and bad. And then they did change. And Dominic Cummings, who would have thought that, you know, a year ago he would be in the position he's in now. So I think one of the dangers of seeing it's, it's, it is static. But I do agree. One of my biggest concerns is that even people, you know, in my generation, people I know who, you know, are sort of you people were considered more engaged uh, sort of people uh, than, than others. Even they are sort of switching off. There is a notion that, especially the, my generation, the younger ones, have been really hit hard consistently. we got to shield ourselves from politics and all the constant chaos and yet another crisis. Politics isn't something you would participate in. It's increasingly something you shield yourself from. Uh, and I think the more and more that seeps in and the more Partygate continues, the more it feeds this notion that you know, politics doesn't can't work for people's lives. And yeah, I'd love to see a politician and a party really come up with a vision that can address that, that can take it forward. Sorry, that's exactly what I'm, I was saying, or trying to say. I didn't phrase it very well. There isn't, there isn't anybody at the moment who's pushing for those changes. Um, Labour just seems to be going middle of the road on everything. Um, instead of, you know, somebody stepping up and going, you know, let's actually do what we're supposed to be here for. People, you know, if you if you want voting in, if you know, if you want conservatives out, then, you know, you've got to have a really strong opposition to actually be able to do that and give policies that people are going to get behind and believe in. Cheryl, thank you very much indeed for joining in. Go on, Davey Moore, you've been very patient there with your, with your hand up. Go on, what do you want to say, Davey? Thank you. I always am. Um, yeah, like I, I agree with the essence of what people are saying. I think when it comes down to everything that we've been discussing, there have been some really good points raised about the media playing a key role in it. Hardeep did and Mike did and Omar did. Um, like victimhood sells. Like um, I think it was Omar, as it said, uh, media manufactures consent, which is true. But it's also the essence of outrage. That is what sells. If you simplify arguments down to us versus them, yes versus no, right versus wrong, it's going to sell newspapers. And you can't even exempt the BBC from that. The BBC is, and I hate to say it, a political tool. It is ultimately funded by the government through its funded model. And so we're going to see exactly the same problem play out there. Yeah, it isn't ultimately funded by the government. It's full, It's funded by licence payers. Now, it, it, it's a fine line because it, 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 that licence fee is ultimately set by government and authorised by government, but it isn't funded directly by government. And, you know, I, th I think there is quite an important distinction there. You could say that there is, and if you believe so, that's absolutely fine. I think when it comes down to it, I looking at the fact that they were going to punish the BBC for accurately reporting on the fact that they're a terrible government, 
but I'm just saying that that might kind of speak to what's going on. And then when you look at the, the broader implication of media in general, never mind, you know, actual reporting media, everyone mentioned uh, Auburn, everyone's spoken at length about him. One of his relatives is on Twitter, and when Elon Musk announced that he was going to buy it, he was, he's like tweeted this stuff that was like, finally I'm uncensored and I can say that uh, trans people aren't the people they say they are and that vaccines don't work. And it was like, I checked your timeline. That's literally all you've done for like a year. So I'm, I'm not really sure how cancelled and censored you are. Like, mm. that's that's how the essence of this stuff plays out. We're doing this elections bill to protect you, but it's actually going to restrict you. We're doing the policing bill to protect you, but it's actually going to restrict you. Because ultimately, they try to sell us victimhood, but we don't buy it. They do. Very, very interesting, David. Thank you. Omar, who's listening along with us and has made a, a couple of excellent contributions, has made, recommended a couple of books on uh, Twitter tonight. Uh, he said, uh, I think it was uh, Anna who, who recommended Our Malady by Timothy Snyder. So he's put, if you follow Omar at the Popcorn Reel, uh, Our Malady, Lessons in Liberty from a Hospital Diary. You'll see the front cover of that book there by Timothy Snyder and also another book by Timothy Snyder called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. So a couple of bits of uh, essential reading there. Uh, Aidan is with us, I think. E-H-D-E-N. Hello, Aidan. All right. Hi there, thank you for inviting me. Um, I would like to make a comment. I probably represent um, an audience that usually um, considered to be um, not the typical byline radio listener. I am, I am listening to both the left and the right I, I, because I found that um, the truth doesn't really have a, a political side. And, um, and I found that in the last, and, and you can see my, my profile, um, the reason why I became involved is because I exposed the Pfizer contracts about a year ago in July. Um, and, and I find the whole situation right now to be extremely frustrating and dangerous because what I see is an erosion of truth. And and I don't think that, that I don't think there's a big difference uh, between um, the perception of people in the left and in the right. Look what happened in Canada yeah. in terms, of, in terms of, of, uh, Trudeau, for example, the, the activities that he did over there, the, the practically the, the, the emergency laws that he used, uh, in order to suppress the demonstration. That is dangerous. And, and I find, and, and I think that all of us are, I, I'm extremely, extremely worried about the election bill and the policing policing bill. I, I try to, to make my objection. I try to make my comments about it. Obviously, the government doesn't really care about our comments. And I think and I think the situation right now is hard because the problem is not, is, is that, I think the best description that I heard about politics is like that. All politicians are like, uh, pol political parties are like, are like, um, are like groups in, in, in the NBA. All of them have their own teams. All of them are fighting each other. Off court, they might be friends. Sometimes they have rivalry. But they're all playing for, 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 for one league that sets up the rules. And I think we are living in, 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 in one of the hardest times. I, I never imagined that my rights for democracy would be like that. And I want to give just a quick example from Israel because I'm originally from there. What happened in Israel is that I have friends who are in the left and they were extremely against Benjamin Netanyahu, extremely. They were demonstrating in the streets all the time. And when the new government came, they, they, the government 
that has made the same regulations and, and that did the same things. And and we are talking about political political activists that have been there in the streets fighting for for a long time. They are probably left of the of uh, labor in, in in the description. Probably Green would describe as, as in in the levels and. And they saw the same situation happening. So I don't really think we are facing a problem which has a that, that the left and the right is, is the best way to define it. It's 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 a, we are fighting for the truth, and I think people would rather we can we should probably focus on that. A prime minister that lies the way that he did should not stay a day in 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 in, in his office. Period. It doesn't matter if he's left or if he's right, or it doesn't matter where he is. The way that it has been done, it shouldn't be done. And I think a lot of people would agree to that. But I think the problem that we have is that. The way that the system is is tilted towards um, using, uh, utilizing all the knowledge that has been uh, that's been acquired for the, for, from technology companies in order to manipulate the people, and and so we are facing a, a battle between truth and and lies and, and and good or evil or whatever you would describe it. And I and I and even though somebody might look at my profile and go like. Oh, he's anti-vaccine, so he's 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 a uh, he's not person that I want to speak with. Um, I think the only way that we can find the truth is by communicating and by democratically disagreeing and 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 speaking about it and having the right to demonstrate and having all the things that are right now in danger. And thank you for allowing yeah. us to do that. I, uh, thank you very much indeed, uh, Hardeep. I, I think I said we we might chat for forty five minutes or an hour on this subject, and uh, we've had a fascinating conversation. I think we'll draw it to close because we've gone a long way now from the policing bill. I mentioned earlier we'd gone so long that I couldn't remember what we'd actually started talking about, but it, is, it was the policing bill and the elections bill. I, I think uh, my take out from this is, is that the is, I think, a real concern about a slide towards authoritarianism in the UK. Uh, and these two bills are only part of a much bigger picture. And it's a picture that has deep historical roots as well. But I also do think we need to keep it in perspective. I think that uh, analogies with the Third Reich are really inappropriate and, and don't really take us anywhere useful. But I, I do think it behoves us all to just kind of look around and see who we feel we can vote for, that, you know, get the sense that a vote is never wasted and that we are active participants in this as well. You know, this is not some democracy is not something that happens to us. It's something that we play a part in and it's it's something that we all need to play an active part in. Yeah, absolutely, Adrian. And and it, it's been a really interesting discussion. Really, really enjoyed it because it's such an important issue as well. And I think I would say, you know, let's all stay engaged. I mean, those of us listening probably are very engaged already, but let's keep engaged. Let's try to encourage other people to stay engaged and also be open to the possibility that, you know, we can be changed by the world and the world uh, can, can change us as well. We've also got to keep open I think that's one of the biggest things I would say. We've got to keep it. You know, they, they are dark times. There are troubling times. There's always another crisis. The only certainty is is change, really, uh, as I see it. But we have to believe that we're not in uh, a situation in which we're trapped, which can can never change. Uh, we need to 
look at the darkness of what's going on, but also think that, you know, just the fact that enough of us have spent an hour and a half of our evening uh, discussing this, you know, people really do care uh, and they have in the past and they will do again uh, collectively. And I think that's what we need to, to hold on to. Yeah, and thousands more will listen on the podcast as well. Thank you so much, Hardeep. Thank you to everybody who's tuned in live on at Byline Radio via Twitter Spaces. Really do appreciate it. And everybody's taking the trouble to make a contribution. If you're listening on Catch Up on the Byline Times podcast, thank you as well. But it'd be great to have you on listening live at Byline Radio via Twitter Spaces. If you follow at Byline Radio, we'll update you as to when we are going to broadcast it tends to be on a pretty ad hoc basis but you know it's three or four times a week so uh, and when, when we're on we're on and it's good and it's really fascinating debates and really just all kinds of excellent contributors who are making all sorts of interesting points if you're listening whether live or on the podcast don't forget please support byline times if you can take out a subscription or better still a membership you'll get details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com and don't forget if you're listening live the byline festival starts tomorrow you may attend live it's at portobello road in north kensington in london or you can watch on byline tv get more details about ticketing at bylinefestival.com just got a fantastic cast list of people turning up there as well as hardeep and our co-founder peter dukes people like rio ferdinand joanna scanlon asif kapadia just a wonderful wonderful cast list carol cadwallader as well so go to bylinefestival.com Com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. I'll see you all again very soon. Until then, though, ta-da, cheers.